0: Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach, I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad that you have decided to spend some time with us this weekend here in this beautiful morning at one of our favorite things to do, which is our outdoor service. And I especially want to say welcome to you if you are here because your child participated in Kids Camp, and this is your first time being with us. Thanks so much for trusting us all week with your kids. And thanks for letting them have a great time learning about how much God loves them. And we hope this morning will be a small taste of that for you in the same way we communicated that message to your kids this past week. And I also want to say thank you on behalf of the staff to all our volunteers who made Kids Camp possible. Uh, You may notice that my voice is on the edge. Uh, I coach football here in Hudson. And if you know me, you can imagine the kind of football coach that I am. So I yell a lot. So I'm gonna try to hang in there together with you this morning. We are starting a new sermon series for the month of August. We're calling it Eternal Hope. And if you have your Bible, you can pull it out to Revelation chapter 21. We're gonna look at the first four verses. Revelation 21, we're gonna look at the first four verses. And I think of this sermon series as a little bit of an encouraging challenge. I say encouraging because We're calling this series, Eternal Hope. We're looking at the future that God has promised for all of his people. And it will be four weeks of relentless encouragement that if you're here and you are a Christian, the arrow is pointing up for you. Things are only going to be better for you in the future, no matter how good they might be or bad they might be today. But it's also a little bit of a challenge Because for many of us, the growth that needs to happen in our spiritual journey, is that we need to be a little less tethered to the present. A little less riding the waves of when things are good or when they're bad. Of when we like what's happening in the world and when we don't. We need to fix our eyes a little more on the horizon and be less rattled by the day to day. So we hope to encourage and to challenge this morning will set us off in that direction. So I have three points I'm gonna to use to guide our time together. They go simply like this. I want to show you that heaven is different than you think, better than you think, and closer than you think. Heaven is different than you think, better than you think, and closer than you think. Let's start with heaven is different than you think. I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven. I don't know if you think of a movie that has a depiction of heaven. I don't know if you think of floating in the sky, of wearing a diaper and playing a harp. I'm not sure what image comes to your mind. But when we read about heaven in the Bible, we bring to it our ideas, our cultural ideas, concepts, things that we have fantasized about, or even heard. So it's really important when we take a look at what the Bible says about heaven, that we separate what it tells us versus what we've picked up on the way. And what we're going to find is that heaven is not floating in the clouds. There are no diapers and no harps, at least not the way you're thinking. You might be glad to hear it is not one big church service that just goes on for eternity. Instead, when the Bible talks about heaven, what is to come, the new heavens and the new earth, it has a much more grounded view in mind. I want to show you two things that point in that direction here in this passage. First, the writer is telling us as he begins to get a vision for what the future holds, that what he sees is that heaven and earth are becoming one. You see that he, he sees a city coming down from heaven and, be, and joining with the earth. The Bible tells us when God made the world, he looked at all that he had made and said that it was good. God's original design for the world was good. There's nothing wrong with the universe physically. There's something wrong with me and with you spiritually, and that has ramifications. For our world. It has certainly caused the disintegration of our world. But when the writer visualizes heaven, he has in mind that heaven and earth are becoming one. The second thing you'll see is that it happens through a city. Oftentimes when we think about heaven, we think of an agrarian society. We think of something a little like the Garden of Eden, where maybe we will walk around picking berries, eating them enjoying nature. Certainly, nature will be a beautiful part of heaven. But what the Bible visualizes is a place of development, a city and all that entails. People living together, working together, playing together, building, shaping, creating. A city is not boring and it is not a place of constant tranquility. It's a place of activity. It's a place of productivity, and of rest, and of recreation. What the Bible pictures of heaven is an opportunity to create, to shape. You, You see that in the third thing that's here in this passage about heaven, which is that it's not just a city, but the writer recognizes the city. He says it is the new Jerusalem. He knows it's Jerusalem. He doesn't tell us how he knows. I suppose he could have seen the temple. Maybe he saw his favorite falafel shop. But whatever it is that lets him look at what a city he sees, he recognizes it as Jerusalem. In the same way that you and I might have seen Tower City and said, look, it's Cleveland. I'm sure Cleveland will be in heaven. What the writer is telling us is that God has in mind in eternity, not just a physical universe and not just an opportunity for productivity, for pursuing ideas and pursuing challenges, not only rest and relaxation, but he has in mind a renewing of the earth as we know it. This is a new Jerusalem in that it is still Jerusalem, but it is Jerusalem free of all the evils that plague our human cities. In fact, maybe the best way of understanding what the Bible means when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth is thinking of it this way. Imagine if you could push a button and go back in your life 10 years and you would know everything you know now. All the mistakes that you made, all the decisions that you made, all the opportunities that you missed. Imagine what that decade would look like if now, free of those mistakes and free of those insecurities and free of all the things that made you make a mess of the last 10 years or miss out on what they might have been, imagine how you could do those 10 years if you had a do-over. When the Bible speaks of the new heavens and new earth, it is that kind of do-over it has in mind. That the God who made us and told us to have dominion over the earth, to shape it, to create it, to build, to navigate, to explore, that what he is doing is giving us the earth once more Wiping it free of all the damage that we've done. Freeing us from all the damage that's been done to us. And saying to us, build, shape, create, explore for eternity. Many of us would say that our lives have not been what we wished they would have been. But the Bible promises us in eternity in which God himself will allow us and help us reach our full potential, individually and together on the earth. That is heaven. Rest, yes. Relaxation, yes. Boredom, no. Purposelessness, no. Cities, culture, activity, excitement, that is what heaven is. But I want to show you a second that heaven is not only different than you think, it's better than you think. There's a lot of language here in the passage that you would expect to see. The writer tells us that in heaven, he says, death will be no more. This is verse four. There'll be no mourning, no crying, nor pain. There'll be none of that. In fact, the writer even says that the sea will be no more. I wouldn't panic if you like the ocean. Most scholars say that this is metaphorical language, that in ancient culture, the sea represented chaos, uncertainty, death. That's why in ancient maps, there would just be in the sea a drawing of a dragon. And they would be saying, hey, if you go way out there, you're on your own. Who knows what's out there? What the writer is saying is that heaven is a place of no dying, no pain, no suffering, no fear, no chaos. But you expect that. My guess is that's pretty boilerplate for our understanding of heaven. What I want you to focus on is a little line there in the passage in which it tells us that God himself will wipe away our tears. I want you to think about two things. The first is I want you to think about the intimacy that conveys. I am not much of a crier, although the older I get and the older my kids get, the more I cry. If you ever catch me crying, do not touch my face. You do not have permission to do that. That would be weird and cross a lot of boundaries. But there are six people here who do have permission to touch my face. They're my family. If I were crying and my wife reached over and she wiped away my tear, that is not usually how my family responds. Usually they say, everyone, look, dad is crying. But if my wife reached over and wiped away my tear, I would take that as an act of intimacy and an act of kindness. In heaven if you wonder how close you will be to God if you wonder how if if he'll know that you're there or if you'll just be one of billions of people the Bible promises that God will himself will wipe away your tears that he himself will reach across and touch your face but here's the second thing I want you to realize The Bible tells us there's no crying in heaven. So what are these tears that God is wiping? Well, I believe the only way to understand this is to believe that these are the tears we bring with us into heaven. The Bible tells us that there's a God, that he is all powerful, that he's good, loving, kind, and in control. But of course that begs a bunch of questions, doesn't it? If God is loving and kind and in control, then why do we suffer? Why do we get sick? Why do we get lonely? Why do we die? These are questions that we will bring with us. These are tears we will bring with us. What's being envisioned here is the God of the universe looking at us and saying, I know, It was hard. I know I asked you to go through some difficult things. I know you have questions. But unless you would doubt my love for you, I'm gonna reach across and comfort you myself. You see, the joy of heaven isn't just that we get a do-over. It isn't just that there'll be a city productivity, relaxation, the joy of heaven is that God himself will be our comfort intimately, personally, relationally. Just yesterday, we buried a wonderful member of this church. She loved Jesus for a long time, served God incredibly well, Testimonies of her life and her faith and her struggle are everywhere. And as I read the passage this week, I couldn't help but think about the tears that she might have brought with her into heaven. Questions of why she suffered for so long. Questions of why she's leaving behind the family that she is. What a wonderful picture it is that God himself will be her comfort. That God himself will wipe her eyes. That God himself will recognize her questions and give her hope and comfort for the future. Heaven is better than you think because God loves you more than you think. And he will spend eternity personally, pouring out his love on you. The third thing I want you to see is that heaven is closer than you think. Now what I mean by this is that if you are here and you are a Christian, we are now 45 minutes closer to heaven than we were when we started. Time moves quickly. I told someone the other day that I feel like my family is in a season of life where when I, I'm gonna blink and a decade is gonna have gone by. And as a husband and a father, I mourn that. I wish they could stay little forever. Not like diapers little, but a little bit bigger than that. But they can't. But no matter what sadness the next decade brings me, it will bring me closer to the joy of eternity with God. Today, is not the greatest day of my existence, because that day is on the horizon. But that means, brother or sister in Christ, that we should live today with that day in mind. All that we long for is promised to us. All the peace and the justice, the mercy, the purpose, the love, the joy, All of that is waiting for us in the kingdom that is to come. And while that doesn't mean we don't seek those things now, it means we do not ride the roller coaster of this world. We pursue justice. We pursue mercy. We pursue peace. But we are never defeated because it's promised. In fact, as part of this sermon series in the third week, we're going to challenge you as a church One week, no news, no social media. Soak for one week in the future that is to come. Untether yourself from riding the roller coaster of highs and lows, of stock market peaks and crashes, of political wins and political losses. People who get super passionate about those things Do so because they believe their hope is in those things. No matter what, your future is certain. It's promised. It will be. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know heaven is closer than you think. It's interesting that the writer compares the city that is coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. I've done a few weddings over the course of my career. And on a wedding day, the bride puts a lot of work and a lot of money into looking her best. I mean, the guy is already convinced at that point. But just in case, you know, just in case she comes down the aisle as the best version of herself, how could he change his mind then? But there's a little bit of performance to that. But that is not the culture of marriage in the Bible. They lived in a much different time. See, we tend to think that if we are going to be part of this wedding day, that in the same way we must become impressive to God. But in this culture, if you wanted to marry off your daughter, you would have to arrange the marriage with a family and their son, and you would have to pay them. It was called a dowry. You would say, I'll give you my daughter, and since I'm giving you another mouth to feed, another person to take care of, I'm also going to pay you. Personally, as the father of three daughters, I think this is a stupid idea. Not that it matters, because my daughters are never getting married anyways. But you would have to say, here, take the bride, and so you don't change your mind, let me give you her dowry. That's the culture of marriage, that's the backdrop of this picture, a bride adorned for her husband. You see, we believe deep down that we must have a dowry for God. That if we wanna be included, we must go to God and say, I want to be your bride, and here are my good works. Here's my charitable giving. Here's my moral example. Will you accept me, God? What the Bible has in mind is that the God of the universe loved you so much that he paid the price to make you acceptable to him. That he sent his own son, Jesus, who lived righteously where I have not, who lived sinlessly where you have not, always keeping God's law, never deviating. And this Jesus, who lived this perfectly righteous life, was taken to the cross, rejected by us, because after all, nothing makes us more angry than perfection. And we hung him on the cross to murder him so that his perfection would not indict us. But the God of the universe had planned this all along. That he would die as a sacrifice for our sin. That his death would actually be God pouring out his anger and judgment over your sin and mine. So that when Jesus died, God had no anger left for us. No wrath left for us. And three days later when Jesus rose from the dead and then went on to ascend into heaven, and to sit at the right hand of God as the king of heaven. He is both our savior and our dowry. Why would God accept us? Because Jesus has paid the price to make us worthy. I don't know your story. I don't know whether you think you'll be included in heaven or not, but I can tell you this. The dividing line of who's included and who isn't has nothing to do with morals or church attendance or charitable giving. It has nothing to do with whether you come in with a life you're proud of or a life you're ashamed of. It has everything to do with this. Will you let Jesus pay the price for you? The only thing that stands between you and heaven is asking Jesus, his death, his life, his resurrection to go in your place. Friends, we are not people of this world. We are not people of this city. It'll rise, it will fall. There will be good days, there will be bad. Our future is certain. Let's move forward as people of eternal hope. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for all that you have done to make this future possible. You have made this world. You have declared that it was good and it is. It was, and we broke it. We broke ourselves, and yet you and your infinite mercy and love and kindness did not reject us, abandon us, but you came through your son Jesus to rescue us. Holy Spirit, make us people who are excited about the city that is to come, who are longing for the personal intimate joy of knowing you and being comforted by you. And I pray that even today some who would have said heaven was way off for them might come to see that through Jesus it's as close as simply asking to be forgiven. In his name we pray. Amen.